You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 16. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. I want to introduce you to 1 Peter first. Maybe get you going here a little bit with me as we think about this book. Who wrote the book of Peter? Who wrote 1 Peter? Peter. Right. The answer is not 1 Peter. And then who wrote 2 Peter? Peter the second or something like that. The Apostle Peter wrote the book of Peter. It's kind of an odd thing. If somebody told you, and you, you'd never read the New Testament, but you just kind of heard the gospel stories, somebody, you heard all the gospel stories, you kind of drank them in. If, if you got done with you know, the idea that Jesus is a central character, who else would you say are the really important characters in the gospel stories? Okay, Peter, James, and John. Those are really big, right? Pharisees are pretty important as a group. But you'd think Peter, James, and John. So if Peter is going to write a book, what kind of a book would you expect him to write? Somebody said it. Say it louder. You'd expect him to say a God, to, to, uh, to give us a gospel. Now, the truth is that Peter apparently is the source, long-standing church tradition from way back to the beginning, is, is that Peter was the source of Mark, that Mark wrote down the things that Peter told him as he recalled uh, the events around Christ's life. But Peter did not write a gospel. What did he write? This isn't really, is it, what you would expect the Apostle Peter to write? It doesn't fit, maybe, at first. But then, again, maybe this great spokesman and eyewitness of the Apostles and of the ministry of Christ is giving us something that we should expect. I want to ask you to turn with me to the last thing from the Gospels, or more or less, virtually the last thing, that Peter did comes from John chapter 21. I think it may shed a little light on the book of 1 Peter. It comes from that period after the resurrection. We're in the last chapter of John. Before the resurrection led to the ascension, there was a period, you know, of, of uh, some weeks, seven weeks, more or less, uh, in which Jesus occasionally appeared to the apostles, and other times they seemed to have been at loose ends not quite knowing what to do. John 21 is one of those occasions when Peter, uh, basically, I don't know what's going on exactly, but he says, I'm going fishing. As if, you know, haven't had any appearances lately, haven't, don't know what to study or prepare for right now. Uh, let's go fishing. That's something we know how to do. And so he goes fishing, and they're fishing at night, which was the custom. And the Lord comes to them at night, helps them catch some fish, and talks to the disciples afterwards. Verse 15 says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, these could mean these other men, or it could mean these things, like the fishing implements. doesn't really say. Peter is a little bit humble this time. He doesn't say, yes, I love you more than these. He might have said that earlier, but 
Remember, he just denied Christ not too many days earlier. And so he doesn't say, I love you more. More humbly, he simply says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, there's more to it than that. This little interaction between Jesus and Peter has been discussed many times. Some of you perhaps have heard messages or lessons on this passage. <clears throat> Sometimes people stress the idea that Jesus sort of forces Peter to confess three times and presses because Peter denied him three times to, as it were, give a kind of a rebuke through a series of rhetorical questions. Some of you probably have heard that Jesus uses different words here for love, as if to say, do you love me, agapao, agape, the pure, excellent, godlike love, twice. And then the third time, as if he's really doubting Peter's sincerity, he says, phileo, phile, the love of friendship or affection. It's true that the words change, agape, agape, actually, agapao, agapao, phileo. But I really don't think that's the main point. I think the main point is this. Jesus knows that Peter denied him three times. And although it hurts to be asked three times, what Jesus is also doing is giving him a, a chance to confess three times. Three denials, three confessions, you know that I love you. You know it. You know it. And then three reinstatements. Because every time that Peter denied Christ, any one of them by themselves would be enough to bar him forever from his role as an apostle. But instead, Jesus tells him three times over, we could almost say, I reinstate you, I reinstate you, I reinstate you. He says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep, three times over. And that, I believe, is what First Peter is. It's not a gospel. But it is a feeding and a caring for the sheep of God in a time of persecution and a challenge to the Christian faith. It's not a gospel. That's true. But it is a book that is most needful in a time of impending persecution. That's sort of a basic view of the matter. Let me just race through a few other points just to get us oriented to the book. Of First Peter. Peter is an apostle, as he writes. He's an apostle, an eyewitness of the faith. Again, we might have expected more, but this is what we have. Uh, the language of First Peter indicates that he has been in heavy contact with his fellow disciples and, of course, with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, the language of Peter, and this sometimes throws people, is similar to the language of Paul, especially books like Ephesians. In some ways, similar also to the language that's found in Hebrews. I have a little chart for you that I hope turned out reasonably well, in which 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, is compared to, in its comments on the way women should conduct themselves and dress and treat their husbands, it's compared to Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 14, 
and 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm not going to run through that with you, but you can just see that, the, that not only are the concerns similar, uh, but the language is similar as well. Uh, a lot of the same words as well as the same concepts. Uh, they established their teaching the same way, by grounding it in the prior work of Christ. And in fact, not only here, but in many occasions, the language of Peter and Paul is similar. Critics, whom I don't like to talk about too much in this class, but I will just for a minute, critics say that the reason for this, and if you're ever working with somebody at a secular university, or you yourself went to a secular university, critics say that Peter is similar in its approach, its theology, its language to Paul, because it wasn't really written by Peter. It was written by somebody who wanted to give the idea that Peter and Paul were in deep agreement about things. And that this is not indeed Peter's own idea, but uh, the ideas of someone put into the mouth of Peter in order to give the impression that the rift between, I don't believe there was one, but people say there was, um, the rift between Peter and Paul, Peter having a more Jewish gospel, Paul a more Gentile-oriented gospel, that this rift, which never really was healed, was indeed healed. That is to say, by putting words in Peter's mouth, they give the impression that Peter and Paul were one, even though they weren't. Well, I think that's, you know, there's, first of all, there's, there's no evidence for such a rift between them, except what we have, of course, in that one place in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul rebukes Peter. But by Acts chapter 15, they're all in agreement and things are taken care of. I think it's much easier to say that there's a simpler, more logical explanation. That is that all the apostles saw the same things. They were members of the same group. They spent time with each other. They agreed as to what the gospel was. They were members of the same team. And like any group that has the same vision, members of the same team, they're going to start talking in similar ways. That would apply to a sports team, to a military team, to a team at work, around your house, you and your children or your parents, those with whom you spend a lot of time, just start talking similarly. That's natural when you agree about things. So we don't need to go through a stretch for that. I'll simply call your attention to an outline of 1 Peter. Uh, next page in your, uh, in your outline there. I'm not going to go through it with you point by point. We'll go through it in much more uh, detail in a little while. I do want to say this. I'm just going to spend uh, you know an hour and a half or two hours at the most on Peter. And so what I'm going to do is operate thematically here. And, and I'm going to call to your attention three themes that more or less coincide with the movement through the book. So the first theme is holiness is the mark of a Christian. Chapter 1 around verse 13 through chapter 2, uh, maybe verse 3, maybe verse 10. Uh, second, social relations within the church. And third, the problem of persecution, solutions to the problem of persecution, later half of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. Persecution does not take up the whole of the book of Peter. But he does have his eye on it all the time. He has his eye on the difficulty of living in this world as a Christian. And as a result, that shows up, that interest in living a difficult life as a Christian in this world shows up first and last in the book. If you just notice in chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, he praises God for the secure hope that God's elect have, even though they suffer trials now for a little while. He puts suffering in the context of doxology, praise to God, with which the book opens, 
and a statement of confidence that God will take us through to the end. A statement of confident joy. And at the end of the book, chapter 1, chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I write encouraging and testifying to you that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Even while Satan prowls and while persecution looms, you can stand. The book begins and ends with promises that despite the difficulties in life, you will stand. Because it's not always easy to stand then or now for that matter. So, a little bit of an introduction to the book of First Peter, and then let's, uh, let's look at the book itself. Unless anybody has a question, lightning quick question about First Peter. Okay, ready to go? I really just wanted a drink of water. That's what that was about. What page are we on? 56. First Peter, chapter 1. Peter opens with a section in which he praises God. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise be to God, he says. He's given us this hope, now watch, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, now we'll translate, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are kept, I know it says shielded in the NIV, but it's actually the word kept again, a different word for kept, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are kept by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in this last time. Now his overture to his faithful people is this. You are God's elect. You're called to a living hope. You are strangers and exiles in this world, chapter 1, verse 1 says. Uh, difficulties are going to come your way, but there is a reward and inheritance kept for you, verse 3, even while God is keeping you for it. It's kept for you. And you are kept for it. So that come what may, and a lot may come, he begins with this guarantee of God's sovereign provision. He immediately tells us why he starts out with that idea of God keeping and so forth. It is because, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, this idea you've got a reward kept for you. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Now a little while is a euphemism. What he means by a little while is a little while compared to eternity. A little while can mean in New Testament language, as it does, for example, in, in Revelation, ten days can mean your whole life. So suffering for a little while may mean you suffer even to the point of death. But it's a little while compared to eternity. And he gives the clue how hard things can get with that phrase, while you suffer in all kinds of trials. That's his first point. And his last point, again, in the book is going to be very similar. He's going to say, I write to you to encourage you that, that this is the true grace of God, chapter 5, verse 12, in which you stand. Now, this grace, this is the grace of God in which you stand, could mean the whole book is about the grace of God that allows you to stand. Or it could be, the last part of the book, that God's grace that allows you to stand is the ability to resist Satan who prowls like a roaring lion. I don't know which one it is. But I do know this, that the book begins and ends with a reference to God keeping us safe, even in the midst of persecution. 
Now, that's the overarching idea. But he's not just interested in persecution. He's also interested in how we live out our lives in the face of this, in this difficult age that is ours. And he's going to stress three things. Christian holiness in this age, apart from persecution. Proper social conduct, the life of Christians in Christian society. And the proper response to the coming persecution. So, let's take a look at the first one. And that is Christian holiness. Christian holiness. Begins with the call to holiness in verse 13. Actually, the call proper begins with the notion that we should be self-controlled. Be holy. First of all, be self-controlled. Verse 14, we should be holy, he says next, as obedient children, not, he says, don't, be, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't conform yourselves to your evil desires. And here's why. A little theme that we're going to have going here, and that is, we don't really belong to this world and its desires anyway. Watch. Chapter 1, verse 1 is addressed to God's elect, strangers or exiles in the world. Chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, don't conform to evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Verse 17. Since you call on a God who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. Chapter 2, verse 11. One more. Once, uh, sorry, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. How do you know the song, old song? This world is not my home. The chorus goes, I'm just a passing through. Raise your hand if you know that song. You like that song? How many of you like that song if you know it? How many of you dislike that song? Nobody dislikes it. Has anybody here ever told or taught to dislike that song? How many of you think there's something kind of fishy about that song? Nobody thinks there's anything fishy? Who said that? <laughs> Would you like to help us get started? You don't know that song. Does anybody here know that song? It doesn't, the song itself doesn't matter. It's just that little phrase, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. There is something a little bit odd about that song, isn't it? Is that a, is that a good view of the world? I mean, doesn't, doesn't a, a ref doesn't a reformed world and life view say that God has an interest in restoring his creation? It's all his, that he created the world, right? And he fashioned it. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that we should try to redeem all creation because God in Christ is restoring all things and reconciling all things to himself? Is the psalm beginning to sound fishy yet? No. Take any takers. This morning they thought it was fishy or whatever it was in another class. Um, I was taught this song as a boy, and I was taught as a college student at a good reform college that this is a bad song because it's world-denying. And we ought to affirm the world that all creation is God's. How many of you perhaps have heard a, a little a scenario 
uh, about Christ's relation to culture. How many of you have heard of Richard Niebuhr? Okay. A couple dozen of you have heard of Richard Niebuhr. Let me just give you a little, little scenario he thinks of. He thinks of different ways for Christians and for Christ to relate to the culture. Uh, and I'm not going to give you all of them here, but uh, one of them is, well, let me see which one shall I put up here. Christ against culture. And it's the responsibility of Christians to oppose the worldliness of, of, this, of this age. Uh, Christ fulfills culture is another one. He actually has five. Let me get, give you three or four. Christ fulfills culture. The idea here would be that uh, various cultures can take us pretty far, uh, a long distance towards true righteousness and true holiness. Uh, or at least toward wisdom or, or things that help people like, you know, medicine and cars and so on. Uh, but to really make something of it, we have to press on beyond that. And so we have to add to it Christ fulfills culture as a second one. Um, maybe, one maybe one more before I give you the one that Calvinists usually choose. Um, Christ of culture. The idea there is that... that um, Whatever is good in any culture comes from the Spirit of Christ kind of dwelling in it. The natural, um, even the natural gifts of humanity are, are getting their origin, their source in Christ. Have you like any of these? Here's one more. Christ transforms culture. How do you like that one? Responsibility of a Christian to to uh, change the world for the Lord, to get in there and get involved in uh, politics and social action, and you know, and uh, see if we can bring more of the will, more of the reign of Christ to bear. This is kind of new to you. I'm getting that feeling. How do you like number one? Christ against culture. Raise your hand. I'm not going to hold you to it. I'm not going to mark you up or down if you guess right. Christ against culture. Nobody likes it. Christ fulfills culture. Anybody like that one? Nobody likes that one either. Christ of culture. Anybody like that one? A couple people nod their heads. Three people. Christ transforms culture. How many of you like that one? Okay, that's getting the largest number. How many of you are afraid to raise your hand? All right. I want to tell you that, uh, that in the circles that uh, give the largest number of students to this seminary, if I can put it that way, this is, the, this is the main view. This is considered to be the Calvinistic view. Uh, just a tiny bit of church history, if I may. You know, John Calvin is, is uh, you know, looked upon as the originator of, of, a, of a soteriology, doctrine of salvation, that has its focus on God's sovereign working. Salvation is of the Lord. That's Calvinist. But that's not all Calvin did. Uh, Calvin also looked at refugees coming to a city and, Started things like a silk industry in town. Started other textile industries. Tried to close down taverns where there's lots of drunkenness and gambling and so on. He was interested in social reform. He was interested in providing decent jobs for people and so forth. So Calvin is considered to be one who has this view, Christ transforms culture. And in, in this day, uh, whether you've heard of these labels or not, it's certainly true that a lot of Christians are advocating that the evangelicals should stop their withdrawal from the world and stop giving the world. You know, if we've got 60 or 70 million evangelicals, we should make more of an impact on our culture. We hear that kind of language a great deal from all quarters. 
And there's something, there's a lot of truth to that little ideal. But I, I want to urge upon you something else, and that is that Peter says that Christians are strangers, are exiles, are aliens in this world. There's a sense in which Peter does us a great service in a, in a culture that has been so much influenced by Christianity. Although we're long ways from being a Christian nation, I believe. But lots of influences. Even things, even things as simple as the idea that when an ambulance is behind you, you should pull off. You know, not every nation on earth has a, a, a high view of human life which is borne out in a little thing like that. That whatever's going on, you must pull over. Somebody could possibly be dying. Right? Just given. That's an influence of Christianity in our culture. Not every culture has that concept that you pull over for an ambulance. Lots of Christian influences. And furthermore, uh, you know, there are lots of Christians in this world. But we have to hear what Peter has to say. What Peter has to say to us is, there's a sense in which we really don't belong here. The old song, which I was trying to get some of you to say you didn't like, but you all did. The old song has a lot of truth in it. We are kind of passing through. Yes, it's true that the Lord will restore the heavens and the earth. And he will give us resurrection bodies. And if the song would lead us away from those principles, that Jesus cares about our bodies, and is going to restore and purify all the creation and do his will in the new heavens and the new earth, if an emphasis on, our, on alienation would, would wipe that out, then we would have a problem. But this we do need to realize there's a sense in which we'll never fit here. The Christians will always seem kind of strange to a lot of people. That no matter how nice you are, no matter how logical your explanations of what you're doing are, some people will look at you and say, after all the explanation is done, you're nuts. You're, what is wrong with you to believe that stuff? Now, Peter's going to get into that a little bit more, but this is a testimony that we need to receive from him that, that holiness sometimes is radically nonsensical to the world around us. Maybe the easiest example of that would be sexual mores. You know, what is wrong with you Christians that you won't have a little fun? How many of you have heard that at some point in your life? You know, it's just, it's just recreational sex. Why not have some fun? Why deprive yourselves, you Puritan fun haters? Why not go out and just get loaded once in a while? Drink your cares away. Come on. What's wrong with you? The world doesn't understand. And, and we'll never be comfortable. We'll never just plain fit in. And we shouldn't really want to, he, uh, Peter says. Okay. Be holy because uh, you should no longer live for your evil desires because you don't really fit in this world and its desires. Number two. Be holy Peter says, verse 14, 15, 16, 17, Be holy because I am holy, God says. And he calls us to be holy, to be like him. That's the imitation motif. Number three, we should be holy because we are redeemed from our former empty way of life. 
by the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, the precious blood, more precious than silver or gold, we've been redeemed. Fourth, we should live holy lives because holiness minimizes suffering in this life. Uh, it, it does allow us to live the best possible life that we can. We'll get to that a little bit more uh, in a minute. So, holiness. Holiness means, then, those four things. And if I can just define holiness for a moment, it means that we should be set apart, set apart from the world. We reject our evil desires, the empty way of life, individually. We're also going to see in a few minutes that there is a social component to holiness. Christians shun the sins that mar Christian community. They don't just care about their own holiness. They're also zealous for the holiness of their community. And part of that is, while we're trying to influence this world, Christ transforms culture, it really should. Sixty million evangelicals should have more impact than they do. And we should wonder what's wrong. But we also recognize that there's a sense in which Christians are basically against the mainstream of almost every culture that's ever been. I'll put it to you a different way. Peter is not a real optimistic or real evangelistic book. Peter has this sense that we're separate from the world. The world thinks we're strange. We'll talk about that more. There's a place where he says it. We'll talk about it more in the second half. And the best way to change the world is sometimes by simply saying no to the world. One scholar, his name is Wolfgang Schrager, with a name like that, you better have good things to say, said, the more the church has sensed its alienation from the world, the more it has been able to influence the world. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Can I read it to you again? The more the church has sensed its alienation from the world, the more it has been able to influence the world. The way to change the world is not by being the world's buddy, because that won't happen unless you go over to their side. Recognize how different you are. We want to stress the lordship of Christ over all things. But sometimes lordship of Christ over all things means rejection of many things. This has its impact on, as I was alluding to a moment ago, the possibility of evangelism. When Christians live well, the world doesn't always understand why. In this seminary, we rightly talk about apologetics and outreach and evangelism and things like that. And we, we rightly look for opportunities. I hope you look for opportunities uh, to testify to your faith wherever you are, whatever your station in life may be at, at work, uh, if you're not a full-time student and so on. James, sorry, uh, the Gospels, maybe, maybe the letters of Paul, would give the impression that you know, we should expect good results. But 1 Peter chapter 2, watch, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, turn with me, suggest that no matter how good a life you may live, no matter how brightly your light shines, the pagans may not ever get the point. Dear friends, he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that... Stop right there, don't read anymore. Live such good lives among the pagans that sometimes you're led to believe that, you know, Peter would finish it off by saying, the pagans will want to know why you live so well. 
Or they'll ask you how, you're, how it is that you're such a wonderful person and so altruistic and kind and loving and sacrificial. That you live such a good life that people will, will want to know why that light burns inside you. Well, sometimes. But sometimes, Peter says, sometimes you will live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Do you know what that means? Do you know what the day He visits us is? What is it? It's the judgment day. That is, you'll live beautiful lives and, and the pagan will say, I accuse, I accuse. And the only time they finally stop accusing is when Christ returns and then they have to admit that they were wrong to accuse you. And it will never happen in this life. I'm not urging you to despair of evangelism, but this is part of the biblical testimony. We're that strange to the world at times. He goes on to tell us in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, uh, some things about the hope that we should have as Christians. Another very well-known verse that I don't think we always necessarily get quite right. In your hearts, he says... Set apart Christ as Lord. He's talking about not being received well here. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Now notice what comes next. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter does not say, live such a good life and give such a good answer, that they'll become Christians. What does he say? Live so well, answer so gently, that they'll be ashamed of their slander. They'll still slander, but they'll feel bad about it. That's, that's the hope that Peter lays out here. I could go back, and in fact I will go back, and talk about this uh, even line by line. Be prepared to give an answer. That little word, give an answer, is actually a Greek word, which I will transliterate for you if I can refrain from writing any Greek letters up here. Apologia. You probably recognize a word in there, right? Apologetics. That's right. And, and we sometimes link apologetics with giving a reason for the faith, and we link apologetics with outreach and evangelism, even in our, in our curriculum we do. And again, I want to make it absolutely clear I'm not against that. I'm all in favor of that, and I think that what's taught in that course is wonderful. But what he's saying here is that the, the answer that you give is actually, this word apologia is actually a word from the court system. And the idea is that you have been hauled in front of the court to give a defense for yourself. And even this little word, which seems so innocuous in the English and can be innocuous in the Greek, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. That word for asks, for those of you who know Greek, aiteo, on a number of occasions can mean ask in, a, in the sense of interrogation. Asking in the courtroom and fitting with apologia, which is definitely a legal term, we begin to get the drift. And a little bit more. Be prepared to give a defense to everyone who, I'll say, maybe over-translating a little, demands it of you to give the reason... And even the word there is sort of an accounting, as if you have to render account. And when it's all done, when you've given that reason, then the result again will be 
Not that they'll say, oh, gee, we're sorry we charged you. We're sorry we thought ill of you. The result will be they'll keep on slandering you, but they'll feel bad about it. That's about as good as it gets sometimes. There's another passage along these lines. It's chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Follow with me there, if you would. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. But here goes a little more on this theme. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. This is the imitation of Christ's motif. He was willing to suffer. You should be too. He did not live his life out for human desires. He lived it out for the will of God. You should too. It's just implied there. For you have spent enough time in the past. Now, Peter's main audience, therefore, we're going to tell in a second, were Gentiles and pagans. He says, for you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Those are the sins of rank paganism, sensuality, drunkenness, and idolatry. They think it strange, verse 4, that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. How many of you know exactly what this is talking about? How many of you are adult converts to the Christian faith? And you now see your friends from high school or your friends from college or your early adult years and they say, what? What do they say? What happened to you? Some, tell me. Somebody give your testimony. What do they say to you? Chapin, you raised your hand. What do they say to you? They thought you were nuts. Why were you nuts in their mind? And and it's so much fun, right? You that's what they said. You you are come on, let's go let's go get loaded, let's go get drunk. Right? Have you heard it? What's wrong with you? Why don't you want to have any fun anymore? Don't you like us anymore? Think we're think you're better than us, don't you? Don't you? Have you heard it? They're not pleased that you've gotten your life in order. They think you're strange. And they don't just think you're strange, Peter says. They heap abuse on you, self-righteous, holier than thou, you Christian. Don't you know what you're losing? Don't you know what you're giving up? That's what happens sometimes. Now, of course, it, it works the other way, often, because maybe your friend was searching too. I will tell you that I became a Christian when I was a freshman in college. I think I mentioned that before. My best friend from high school and I were converted the same week. We wrote each other letters that crossed in the mail. The day after I sent my letter, I got a letter from him, and I didn't. it wasn't responding. So, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. In fact, four or five of my high school friends became Christians in the six months after we graduated as all, you know, sort of young existentialistic crypto-nihilists or something. We thought we were very cool, and uh, we were doing our best to hide our despair, and the Lord reached us. And it's happy. That happens a lot of times. And we kind of had a get-together one year after we graduated and, and uh, shared our newfound joy. But it's also true sometimes they simply abuse you and don't understand. 
that is, that's what happens. That's part of Peter's testimony to what it means to be a Christian. It means to be thought of as strange and to be abused for it. Now, that shouldn't stop us. We should still do good. I have a little word in there for you in the outline. There's a, there's a word that appears uh, a dozen times, or a word family, agathopoieo and agathopoios, which mean to do good and, and good deeds. And, and those words, doing good or good deeds, appear 12 times in the New Testament. Six of them come from Peter. Uh, Peter tells us that by doing good, we can silence foolish men. It's not always pessimistic. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And here's one that is hopeful. Chapter 3, verse 6, he says that a Christian wife can win her husband. That's the one place he gives some really solid hope. Can win her husband by doing good and being an excellent wife. Three times... Three times, Peter says, it is imperative for a Christian to continue to do good, even in the face of suffering, even while being abused, uh, just for being a Christian, in fact. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 19. And he does hint, just barely hint a couple of times, that by doing good, we can frustrate the hostility, at least, of some of our adversaries who will admit that they're, they're judging us or harming us unjustly. So there is a call to holiness in Peter, a unique call. We might say Peter is an austere book. It doesn't say, do things right and you can count on some results. It says, do things right and you may get no results, but entrust yourself to God. And he'll take care of things for you. Even if taking care of things for you means only comforting you after your death. Even if it only means that your vindication, the end of the slander, is at the end of this age. And trust yourself to him. He'll keep you for it. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. resourcesforlifeonline.com.